So if you'd uh, please turn your Bibles to the book of Acts. We are in Acts chapter 8. We're going to be looking at verses 26 to 40 this morning. If you're using the Pew Bible, that will be found on page 917. And today we're going to look at the third and probably the most well-known incident concerning this deacon and evangelist, Philip. So as we've seen, chapter 8 starts a new section in the book of Acts. See, up until chapter 8, the gospel had only been proclaimed in the city of Jerusalem. But because of the martyrdom of Stephen and, and because of the persecution from Saul of Tarsus, the, the church is now scattered. It's scattered. And chapter 8 gives us three scenes, three scenes of Philip's evangelistic work. The first scene that we see in verses 4 through 8, that tells us the, the mighty signs and the miracles that were done through Philip and his accompanying preaching about Jesus. We see demons are cast out. We see the sick and the lame, they are healed. We see that there is great joy filling the entire city. And these miracles were done for the purpose of attesting to Jesus, to attesting to the validity of Philip's message, the gospel message. The second instance we see in verses 9 through 25, this is what we looked at last week. It tells about Simon the sorcerer, and it provides a warning for us, a warning about coming to Christ solely because of the miracles, solely because of the outward benefits rather than because of who Christ is, rather than because of his own worth. Well, today we look at perhaps the, the most well-known incident in this chapter, and this is Philip's encounter with the Ethiopian eunuch. And we see how Philip, using Old Testament prophecy, told the Ethiopian the good news about Jesus. So Acts chapter 8, verses 26 to 40. Okay, now the word of the Lord. Now and the angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south. To the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And Philip rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot. And he was re reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him. And heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and said, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opens his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water. Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch was, saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself in Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you for this word. And Lord, we do pray for your Spirit to be with us. Lord, we are dull. We need uh, your spirit to, to open our hearts to hear from you. 
and I am dull. I need your spirit to, to speak through me, to give me the power of your wisdom and, and, and your word. Above all, Father, we want to see you glorified during this time. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the, the famous 19th century preacher in London, famously said that when he's preaching, he takes whatever passage that he's preaching from and he makes a beeline to the cross. And this is a practice that, that's uh, of many modern evangelical and Reformed and, and PCA preachers do as well. We make a beeline to the cross. And I understand the motivation because the cross is central to the gospel. The doctrine of the cross, or more precisely, the doctrine of the substitutionary atonement, this is central to the gospel. See, the substitutionary atonement says that Christ died on the cross as a substitute for his people. And this is really the only way, this is the only way that a sinful people can be reconciled with the holy God. And this, my friends, this is the starting point of the Christian life. If you miss this, if you miss this doctrine, you are not even a Christian. And the reason making a beeline to the cross is so important because in, Sir, in, in Spurgeon's day, as well as our own, the cross, the substitutionary atonement, they have been assumed at best, lost most likely, or completely denied in the vast majority of pulpits in the country. See, the cross has been replaced. It has been replaced by moralism, that is, be a good person, follow the rules. It's been replaced by the social gospel, that is, make the world a better place, end injustice. It has been replaced by the prosperity gospel. That is, God wants you to be happy. God wants you to be healthy. God wants you to have a lot of money. And all of these substitutes miss the fact that in order to even see the kingdom of God, we must be born again. We must be born again. And this is by grace alone, received by faith alone, in the person and work of Jesus Christ alone, which is accomplished on the cross. Now, as important as the cross is, I think this type of preaching does have a serious shortfall. See, it gets the loss to salvation. That's great. But what it does is it leaves them in the entrance way. It doesn't really take them any further in. See, this type of, of preaching, I think, unconsciously sees getting saved as the final goal of preaching, as the final goal of the Christian life, rather than the starting point, the starting point of the Christian life. And even worse, this type of preaching neglects so much of the Bible because much of God's word, God's breathed out word, is not directly related to the cross. I believe a more biblical approach is to take every text and rather only making a beeline to the cross, but rather make a beeline to Jesus. Something that sometimes, is, as, as we see in this passage that we're looking at today, that, that beeline will be the cross. But more often, the text will show us some other aspect about Jesus. But it all is about Jesus. It's all about his person. It's all about his work. As we heard in our gospel reading uh, from Jesus' own words in Luke 24, 27, he says, all scripture points to him. All scripture is fulfilled in him. And this is what we see Philip do in this passage. So the Ethiopian doesn't understand what he's reading. And then in verse 35, it says, then Philip opens his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, the very scripture the Ethiopian eunuch was reading, this scripture, he told them the good news about Jesus. Philip made a beeline to Jesus. And this provides, I think, a model for us, a good model for us, too, as we study scripture, as we're studying scripture, make a beeline to Jesus. As we are witnessing about Jesus, make a beeline, go from the scripture, make a beeline to Jesus. 
And what we're going to do today is we're going to go through this passage verse by verse. And we're going to understand the narrative. We're going to make specific applications. And then we're going to make a beeline to Jesus. So let's start right in, in verse 26. This is now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south, to the road that goes down to Jerusalem, to Gaza. This is a desert place. Now, first of all, we need to understand that Philip is getting divine direction here. This phrase, the angel of the Lord, we frequently see this in the Old Testament, and it refers to the Lord himself. Oftentimes, it refers to the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. Now, we can't be know for certain whether this was Jesus himself speaking to Philip or if this was the Holy Spirit speaking to him or even an, an angelic being speaking to him. But what we do know, regardless of the direct medium, is that the command came from God. It came from the triune God to Philip. And notice how Philip responds here. He complies immediately. Immediately. There's no discussion. There's no argument. It simply says that Philip rose and went. See, Philip understands that that he's not the planner. He's not the vision caster. He is a servant, and he follows, as a servant, he follows where the master leads him. And this is so important for us as as Christians to understand. See, the Christian life is, for the most part, a a life of listening, a life of, of watching, a life of discerning where God is at work and looking to him, looking to the Holy Spirit for direction. We don't, we don't make our plans and then ask God to bless them. And, and so often we do this. We say, this is what I want to do. God bless what I want to do. Rather, we ask him, where are you working? What are your plans? How do you want me to participate in your work? And this is what Philip does. We need to look at this command from Philip's perspective also. See, Philip has this thriving ministry in Samaria, which we saw in the rest of, of chapter 8. He's following Jesus' command. He is being the witness in in Samaria as Jesus commanded him. And as a result, he is seeing miracles. He is seeing healings. He is seeing demons cast out. He's seeing conversions. He's seeing great joy. Philip is making an impact in Samaria. God is being glorified in Samaria. Now Philip's commanded to leave all of this and go to the desert. Now think about it, the desert. Are there any people in the desert? No. The desert is a desert. That's why there's nobody there. There's no people in the desert. Where are the people? The people are in the city. And that is where Philip is. He's in the city. He's he's making conversions. And it makes no sense. He's called to to leave this thriving ministry. And, And more than that, there are still thousands of people in Samaria who still need to hear the good news of the gospel. But he's to leave these many. And he's going to go to where there are few, if any, people to preach to the to the desert. From a, from a human perspective, this makes no sense. When, when I was still in seminary, Lynn and I went to a church planting uh, seminar. We were, wanted to see if church planting was, was for us. And when we went there, the way our denomination does church planting, and I assume this is the way all denominations do it, is, is you, you study demographics. You see areas that are growing, and you want to plant churches in areas that, that are growing because you bring a church into a growing area, the church is going to grow. And, and oftentimes churches, their first day, may have 300 people. I don't think Northgate has ever had 300 people inside this building. So you see that, and we've been here 45 years. But this is what you, you, you go to where, people, where places are growing. That's where you plant churches. No one finds you know, the, the little backwater town that might be 300 people, and of those 300, 295 of them are over 60. That's not where you go to, to plant a church. You go where the, where the people are. That's, that's, that's the way we think. But that's not what the Holy Spirit does for Philip. 
That's not what he gives to Philip. Philip goes. He doesn't even question. He says, I want to be the servant. I am the Lord's servant. And if the desert is where he calls me, the, to the desert is where I will go. He may not understand, but he trusts. He trusts the one who calls him to the desert. And Philip's mission here is not to preach to the crowds, but rather is to preach to one single person, as we see here. And what a, what a beautiful example is it? This is a beautiful illustration of, of Jesus' good shepherd. Remember the good shepherd? He leaves the 99 and he goes to the one. He seeks out that one lost sheep. And this is quite an unexpected sheep that Philip finds here in the desert. Look at verse, 30, uh, verse 27. It tells us, And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship. So here we see an Ethiopian. First of all, he's a foreigner. He's not Jewish. The gospel had not yet gone out to the Gentiles at this point. And this man, this man was not a commoner. He was, he was a royal official of the queen of the Ethiopians. This was a man of power. He was in charge of the royal treasure. This is a man who had great wealth. And this wealth would have been necessary to make this long, expensive trip to Jerusalem. And even more bewildering is that the text says the Ethiopian had gone to Jerusalem to worship. This is strange as well. This implies that this man somehow knew God. He was either a, a God-fearer or a proselyte. He, th th these are Gentile converts to Yahweh. He was a worshiper of Yahweh. Again, this is very strange. A foreigner from, from a faraway place of Ethiopia. How would he even know about Yahweh? And the last thing that's unusual about this man is that it says he's a eunuch. Well, in ancient times, it was, it was actually pretty common for high-ranking officials to be eunuchs. Oftentimes, we see they were in charge of the king's harem. We see this in the book of Esther. And because the eunuch couldn't have children of their own, they were not seen as a threat to the king. They weren't seen as someone who would try to usurp the king and establish his own dynasty. But this was a pagan practice. This was not the practice. This was not done in Israel. See, Israel was a patriarchal society. Children were not only seen as a great blessing, but they were seen as, as a way for one to, 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 for their name to live on. See, being childless, both for, for men and women, was seen in a Jewish culture as a great dishonor. It was akin to being cut off from the community. In Leviticus 21, we're explicitly told that a eunuch would not even be allowed to, to serve in the temple. And verse 28 tells us that he was returning from Jerusalem and that he was reading the scripture from the prophet Isaiah. And in verse 29, Philip is prompted, prompted by the Holy Spirit, to go to this man in the chariot. Again, we see a, a clear divine direction of this entire incident, as well as Philip's sensitivity, Philip's obedience to, to, the, to uh, the Spirit's leading. In verse 30, we're told that as Philip runs up to the chariot, he hears the man reading from the prophet Isaiah. And notice that Philip immediately recognizes what the man is, is reading. This displays that the intimate knowledge that Philip must have had with Scripture. Just from hearing a few words, Philip is able to recognize the Lord's voice. The Lord's voice, his Lord, in his word. And my question is, does that describe us? Does this describe us? Do we know Scripture? Do we know Scripture well enough to recognize when we hear it read? Continuing in, in, in verse 30, after Philip reaches the man, he asks him a question. His question is simple. He says, do you understand what you're reading? Do you understand what you're reading? 
And again, we see the Holy Spirit is clearly orchestrating this entire event. God is sovereignly directing every aspect that we read here. Uh, and Philip, Philip, who, who, is, who is tuned into the Spirit's leading, he knows exactly what to say. He knows exactly when to say it. And notice that Philip starts with a question. Philip doesn't immediately come there and start talking. He doesn't immediately get out his track. He doesn't immediately launch into the four spiritual laws. He asks a question. And I think there's much wisdom in this, much wisdom in listening and asking questions rather than telling people what we think they need to hear. Francis Schaeffer famously said, if he only had an hour to share the gospel with a person, he would spend the first 55 minutes getting to know the person, listening to the person, asking the person questions so he knew him better. And then he would only spend the last five minutes, five minutes speaking and sharing the gospel. And there's much wisdom in this approach. So how does the Ethiopian respond to Philip's question? Well, verse 31 says, and he said, how can I? How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Again, God is clearly working in this man's life. We don't know when or where he first heard about Yahweh. Perhaps someone told him that this is the, the God of the Jews, and he figured, well, I better go to Jerusalem to find out more about this, about this God. We don't know what he experienced when he came to Jerusalem. It's unlikely him being a foreigner that he would be accepted by the Jewish leadership, either by the legalistic Pharisees or the compromising Sadducees. And perhaps when he was in, in Jerusalem, he was able to find someone to sell him Scripture, purchase Scripture. He wanted to learn, try to learn about God by reading God's Word. But the Scripture is, is foreign to him. He doesn't have the background. We don't know how familiar he was with the, with the Jewish people or, or, or with the Jewish God. Did he know about Abraham? Did he know about Isaac? Did he know about Jacob? Did he know the law of Moses? Did he know about the history of God's people? Did he know the judges? Did he know the kings? Do you know the prophets? We just don't know. All we know is that he did not understand what he was reading, and he was looking for help. And God brought him help. God brought Philip to him to explain the scripture. About six years ago, Lynn and I, were, our family was on vacation. We were on a cruise. And on the cruise ship, every morning, they would have a, a, a Bible study. It was about eight in the morning. And on a cruise ship, most people were on vacation, not really interested in Bible study. So Lynn and I were usually the only ones there. We'd be there, we'd read and, and do a devotion before, before the family got up to, do, uh, to have breakfast. Well, one day we were there, and we saw a teenage girl was there, and, and Lynn invites her to, to come over and join us. And we ask her what she's reading, and she's reading through the book of Revelation. And, and I said, well, you know, what do you think of that? And she's like, I have no clue what it says. It makes no sense to me. Well, I just happened to be studying through the book of Revelation because, remember, I preached through Revelation a few years ago, so I knew a lot about Revelation at that point. So we, we talked to her, we asked her some questions, and we explained the different genres of Revelation, different approaches to Revelation, how we can interpret the symbolism, and you see this girl light up. She's, wow, wow, she, as we're talking to her. Now, we never saw her again, but God had brought her. I, I thought of this passage, that as she's reading Scripture, that God brought her to us, and we got to, to share that with her. So this passage, this passage that the eunuch was reading, this is from Isaiah 53. And if you remember last year, I, I preached on, on the book of Isaiah, and when we came to Isaiah 53, I said that Isaiah chapter 53 is the clearest articulation of the substitutionary atonement, not just in the Old Testament, but in all of Scripture, in all of Scripture. And take a look at this quote that we have in, in verses 32 and 33. It says, Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, 
And like a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And this here, this is a quote from Isaiah chapter 53, verses 7 and 8. And this is, this is from the Septuagint. So if you look back in, in your, in, in your uh, uh, Bibles, the, the wording may be a little different because this is the Greek version of it. But this is Isaiah 53, 57, and 58. And this side of the cross, when we, when we look at it, when, when you're hearing me read these words, we have an understanding. We have a theology. We look at this and we immediately see Christ. We immediately see the substitutionary atonement. It seems crystal clear to us. But this was not the case Certainly for the original, Isaiah himself probably didn't understand that. He himself didn't know what the Holy Spirit was speaking through him. And this certainly wasn't the case at Philip's time. And the question that the eunuch asks is, is perfectly reasonable. Verse 34, it says, And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? Is he talking about himself or someone else? And here is the, the opening that, that Philip was waiting for. The eunuch here is seeking to understand. God is drawing this, this man to himself, and he's sovereignly, he has brought Philip here to, to, to provide the answer that he, that he needs. And in verse 35, we see Philip take the scripture, and he makes a beeline to Jesus. Verse 35 says, Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Now Luke doesn't record for us the exact explanation that Philip gave the eunuch. But we can safely assume that Philip told him about whom this prophet was speaking. And the prophet is speaking about Jesus. Jesus is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. And then after making this connection of the suffering service with Jesus, it says Philip then told the man the good news about Jesus. Luke doesn't, doesn't record, again, specifically what, what Philip said, but it, it could have gone something like this. Philip may have focused the man's attention on the context of what he was reading. He may have taken him to the beginning of the section of what he was reading. So in our Bibles, we would see this in Isaiah 53, verses 4 and 6. Listen to these words. Isaiah 53, starting verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is the cross. This is the substitutionary atonement. Jesus is the suffering servant, and he suffered not because of his own sin, but because of our sins. He bore our grace, not his own grace. He carried our sorrows, the sorrows that come from our sin and our rebellion against God. And when Jesus hung on the cross, his hands and his feet, they, they were pierced with nails. And this was not because of his own transgressions. He was pierced for our transgressions. On the, Christ, on the cross, Christ suffered the crushing anguish of the wrath of God. But he was crushed not because of God's wrath against him. Jesus was perfectly sinless. Jesus was crushed for our iniquities, for our sins. In verse 6 of Isaiah 53, I think, gives us one of the clearest presentations of the gospel that we have in all of Scripture. It says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. 
Well, this is the bad news. This is the bad news. We have all, all gone astray. We have ignored God. We have rejected his authority. We have turned, not just a few of us, but all of us. We have turned each one of us away from God. In other words, we have rejected God's authority, and we've declared our own authority. We have rebelled against him, and we have usurped God's rightful place as master of our lives. And this is wicked. This deserves punishment. See, we have deliberately disobeyed God, and we have rebelled against his infinite dignity. And the natural result, the natural result is that we deserve his infinite wrath. We have brought this upon ourselves. And this is the bad news. This is the situation that not just a few of us, this is the situation that every single person is in. But thankfully, thankfully, verse 6 does not stop there. Thankfully, it does not end with only the bad news. The bad news is then followed by the good news. See, it's true that all we like sheep have gone astray. We have all turned, every one of us, to our own way. This is the bad news. But then, but then the amazing and the glorious good news is, and the Lord has laid on him, not on us, on him, on Jesus Christ, on the suffering servant. God has laid on him the iniquity of us all. My friends, it's the gospel. This is the most wonderful news that any of us can hear. See, we are by nature guilty. We are by nature deserving of God's infinite and eternal wrath. But rather than falling on us as it deserves, as we deserve, Jesus, the sonless, the sinless Son of God, voluntarily took this wrath upon himself. By his stripes we are healed. Can there, can there be any better news than this? And this is what Philip shared with this foreigner, the good news of the gospel. And the gospel had an immediate effect on this man, an immediate effect. He had become a new creation in Christ by grace alone. And he was given a supernatural faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ alone. And this faith alone, this faith alone was the instrument that God used for his justification. And it was by this faith that God made the, this, glorious, this glorious transfer of the substitutionary atonement. God took the sins of the Ethiopian eunuch and he, he put them on Christ and he punished them in Christ. And God took the, the sinless perfection, the holiness of his son, and he credited it to the eunuch. And he declared him not guilty. He declared him justified. And this is the good news of the gospel. And my friends, this same gospel is offered to all. See, we like the eunuch. We like Philip. We like every other elect soul receive it solely on the basis of grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. And then, then when a person is regenerated, there is a response. There must be a response. And we see the response of the eunuch in verse, in verse 36. Verse 36 says, And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And you see this man's primary identity changed. His primary identity is now found in Christ. See, no longer does he identify himself as a, as a high royal official to the queen. He was not identified by his position. No longer does he identify himself as an Ethiopian. He's not identified by his ethnicity. No longer does he identify himself as a eunuch. He's not identified by a physical defect or sexual characteristic. He is identified as a child of God. He was born again. He was washed. He was cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. 
And this, my friends, this is his primary identity. And as such, he wanted to take on that covenant sign that showed that he was a believer and he wanted to be baptized. And my friends, if we are believers, this is our primary identity. It's more than our job. It's more than our abilities. It's more than our status. It's more than our disabilities. We are first and foremost a child of God. Last, last Tuesday, I had a meeting about 15 local pastors. And several of these pastors that I met with were, were bivocational pastors. You know, unlike me, where I'm a full-time working in the church, they would have secular jobs to support themselves. And one of these pastors had a very prestigious secular job. He's actually the chief judge of the superior court. This is probably one of the most prestigious jobs that you can think of, being a judge and being a chief judge. And while we were there, one of the other pastors referred to this man. He called him Your Honor. And he immediately said, no, 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 that, that's my secular title. I'm a brother. That was his first, that was his, his chief identity. He was a brother. He didn't identify himself as this, this high and prestigious title of judge, but he identified it even the higher and even more prestigious fact that he belongs to Christ. And after this Ethiopian eunuch was baptized, verse 39 tells us that the Lord carried Philip away and this new brother saw him no more. But look at the way that this man reacted. In the end of verse 39, it says, and he went on his way rejoicing. Rejoicing. This man was changed. He was filled with the joy of being a new creation in Christ. Wow. So what's our application? What, what does this tell us? What's our takeaway here? Well, I think the application is simple for us. We are to imitate these two men. We're to imitate the two men that we see in this passage. We are to be like the Ethiopian, and we are to be like Philip. We are to be like the Ethiopian, and then we must follow the Lord. We must seek to know him, regardless of our position, regardless of the cost. Our first priority must be knowing him. I mean, this man, he had responsibilities. I mean, he had a high position. It's not easy for him to leave his position to be in charge of the, the queen's treasury. And, and travel to, to Jerusalem, this would have been costly, this would have taken a lot of time. But regardless of the cost, regardless of the time, he must seek the Lord. The man also knew that he needed help. That's why he went to Jerusalem. He was seeking to know, to be around the people who knew about God, who knew the Lord, who could help him. And we too, we too must seek to surround ourselves with people who know the Lord. We must surround ourselves with other believers that will draw us closer to the Lord. Not people who will pull us away from the Lord. People who will build us up. People who will encourage us. People who will help us become more and more like Christ. We must surround ourselves with that. Next we see this man studied scripture. And we too must study scripture. We must seek to understand it. Scripture is our connection with God. And it's vitally important because scripture is all about Jesus. It points to Jesus. It's about Jesus. And this, I think, brings to the foremost application from this passage, the indispensable thing that we learn from this Ethiopian. And that application is that we must receive, we must rest upon Jesus Christ alone as he is presented in Scripture, as he is offered to us in the good news of the gospel. We must be born again. And we must understand that Christ is the suffering servant who was pierced, not just for general transgressions, but he was trans, he was pierced for my individual transgressions. He was crushed not just for some vague, nameless iniquities, but he was pierced, he was crushed for my specific 
my quantifiable iniquities, for my actual sins, which, which I am both grieved by and I am ashamed by. His righteousness is not just given out to people in general, but it is given to me personally. And because of this, I am counted as perfectly sinless, perfectly righteous in God's sight. I am a new creation in Christ. Without us, perf- without us personally receiving the new birth, my friends, nothing else matters. Nothing else matters. There is no further application. And this, this is the starting point. This is not the finishing point. This is not the ending point. This is the f- starting point. Once we have Jesus, then, then the real fun begins. And this takes us to our second application. We are to be like Philip. See, once we belong to Christ, we must follow him. We must follow him through the means of grace, through scripture, through prayer, through worship, through hearing the word read and preached by receiving the sacraments, through the means of grace, we are to become so attuned to God's word, so sensitive to hearing his voice that we will follow him wherever, wherever he calls. And like Philip, when he calls us to leave a thriving ministry in Samaria and go to the desert, we too must follow wherever the Lord calls even when it doesn't make logical sense from a worldly perspective, we must follow where he calls. And like Philip, who, like our Lord, we must leave the many. We must leave the 99 if he calls us and seek out that one, seek out that single lost sheep that the Lord leads us to. And like Philip, when the Lord leads us to this lost sheep that he's called us to, we must first listen, must listen before speaking. We must be truly understand the spiritual need of the person the Lord leads us to before we offer the solution. And then like Philip, we take scripture. We take whatever scripture that that person is looking and studying and we make a beeline to Jesus, knowing that all scripture is about him. All proclaims him. All glorifies him. All proclaims the gospel of grace. And finally, like Philip, we will have the privilege of being the instrument through which the Holy Spirit imparts new life to others. I can't think of a higher, a higher honor than this. There is not a greater joy than this. And this is one that we will be celebrating, celebrating with these people for all eternity. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are amazed. We are amazed at the privilege that you give to us to be your instruments, your instruments of grace, to proclaim to those who do not know you. Father, give us those opportunities. And I pray for each one. If there are any here who hear my voice who do not know you, change that now. Allow them by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to become new creations in Christ. But for those of us who know you, those of us who belong to us, give us by the means of grace, give us that sensitivity to your, to your spirit, to hear your still, small voice, direct us how you would. And Lord, give us the ability, give us the desire to, to leave everything and to follow you wherever that call may be. And Father, we pray that you will use us to glorify you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.